This is Micah Lee, author of Hacks, Leaks, and Revelations, The Art of Analyzing Hacked and Leaked Data, and you're listening to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker. Welcome to 2024. Happy New Year, everybody, once again. Uh, I know I said that last week, but I actually recorded that a month earlier. <laughs> so uh, just real quick, uh, the the project to work ahead and basically take December off from my end was, was fantastic. I'm definitely going to be doing that again next year. I hope you guys enjoyed it, though. I mean, there were some really good stuff in there, I still think. Um, we had a great interview and a good flashback interview and some really good best ofs, including a peak. For a lot of you to the bonus podcasts that are private for my patrons only so you get a little taste of what that's about too so i will definitely be doing that again this coming december uh, that's worked out really well we do have an interview show for you today a really good interview i'm talking to michael lee who's from the intercept and he among other things as part of his journalistic endeavors does a lot of data leak analysis and uh, it's really fascinating. And I think it has a lot to tell us about, you know, what can be gleaned from this information that is basically leaking constantly. Now that we're in the digital era, it's kind of like a sieve. There are cracks in the dike everywhere. And uh, it, it's very interesting to hear it from his perspective. So we'll get into all that in just a minute. I have a lot of things to tell you. First of all, it is annual listener survey time. This is a big deal for me. I really, really want you to do this. It helps me to help you. It helps me to understand what you like and what you don't like. Uh, and it's important to know what you do like, because if you know, I want to keep doing those things. If all I hear from people is, oh, I wish you would do more of this, or I, I wish you'd not do that and do this instead. If, if you're the silent majority that happens to like what, what I'm already doing, it's important to hear that as well. So because I really want you guys to do this, and I know it's hard to remember, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to incentivize you to do so. I'm going to be giving away 10 free copies of my book. That is hard copies, like dead tree, physical versions of my book all 600 pages, all 200 tips, and I'm going to be shipping them even internationally. Now, I can't promise maybe every single place in the earth, but it should go quite far. I'll give you more details at the end of the show, so stay tuned, but please do participate. You've got a, a three or four weeks to do so, and I would very, very much appreciate it. Now, something else you could help with if you would like to take the time. Jeff Jockish has put together a best privacy podcast poll or survey and so if you want to vote for my podcast or you know, honestly, any other privacy podcast, I want to help all of us reach as many people as possible. So uh, I would, if you're interested in voting for that, including my own, uh, there's a link in the show notes for that as well. Now that one you need to do soon because it will end on Wednesday, this Wednesday, January 10th. So next week we'll have a new show and I've got a ton of really interesting news stories to catch you up on, including the crazy story about the apparently deliberate backdoor in Apple iPhones. It has since been fixed, but it existed for many years. It was used to attack several employees at Kaspersky and that turned out to be not such a good idea. Uh, it's, it's a fascinating story. We'll talk about some of that next week. Also the wild ride of beeper mini that kind of all came and went uh, over December and if you don't know what that's about, don't worry about it. We'll talk about it next week. But today we've got a, a wonderful interview with Michael Lee. So he has written a new book called Hacks, Leaks, and Revelations, The Art of Analyzing Hacked and Leaked Data. And that comes out tomorrow. So I actually have not read it yet, but I've got my copy on the way. And as he has worked many, many years uh, with The Intercept, he has been kind of their primary guy to analyze data leaks. And there, there's so many of these things now. 
And it takes a computer to go through a lot of this digital information to try to sort the needles from the haystack and try to make sense of what that data is and try to validate the claims you know, of the leakers of that data. There's a lot to it. So we're going to get into all that today. It's very, very interesting. A couple things before we get started. As usual, I've got some kind of glossary terms for you that we throw around. We talk about Jabber OTR. Uh, you may remember Jabber. I don't know how popular it still is. It was, I think, an open standard instant messaging communication. This is kind of before we our current round of messenger apps. And the OTR part was called off the record, and it was for end-to-end -end encrypted chats, and it was really good. We also talk about AWS, which is Amazon's web services. We talk about SQL, sometimes pronounced SQL, and that is a very popular database language. We talk about JSON, which is JavaScript object notation. I've mentioned that a couple times in the show. It's just a text format for structured data. And real briefly, we talk about DKIM or DKIM, which is domain keys identified mail. And we discussed this actually with Nichols a few months ago when we were talking about email authenticity and spam. Now, one more thing I need to say before we get into this, and this is the mandatory legal notice is that I, and I cannot stress this enough, I am not a lawyer, neither is Micah. We're going to talk about some legal things in here today, like whistleblowing, and <laughs> do not take what we say to the bank. If you need to be a whistleblower, if you need to reveal sensitive data, and you are worried about the legal ramifications of that, please do not base your decisions based on what we're going to talk about today. We will throw out some, some opinions on this, but we are not lawyers. And also, just in case it's not obvious, uh, we're both in the United States. So any of the legal stuff we talk about today, if they have a prayer of being correct, would only probably be correct in the United States. All right. So with that as your intro and a couple caveats, let's get to our wonderful interview with Micah Lee. Michael Lee is an investigative journalist, the director of information security of The Intercept, and the author of the book, Hacks, Leaks, and Revelations, The Art of Analyzing Hacked and Leaked Data. Welcome to the show, Micah. Thank you for having me. Well, I've seen your stuff. I've followed you on social media for a while, but and I, I, that's probably where I saw the notice about the book coming out, which I believe, if this is timed right, was coming out tomorrow, January 9th. Is that right? That's right. All right. So uh, perfect timing for that. Uh, and it looks really interesting, and I and we haven't we've talked about data breaches and a lot of things on this on the show, but this is a slightly different concept. And there's and I want to dig into some of these details. So this is going to be great. So why don't you start off by telling us a little bit more about this book and and what drove you to write the book? So I have been doing investigative journalism at the Intercept for a long time, for um, over ten years now, and I uh, I didn't actually come from a journalism background. I came from a uh, like programmer hacker type background. Hmm. And so a lot of the work that I've been doing has been investigating leaked data sets. And so what I have noticed over the years is that there are very few people that have the skills to do this. Um, hmm. There's very like there's a lot of big newsrooms that maybe hear about it, some sort of leaked data set or a whistleblower sends them a big data set. And it's actually really complicated to... To, to, to do this, and I end up seeing that there's new data sets, like, pretty much every day. I only have a chance to look at, like, a tiny, tiny fraction of them. A lot of them probably have really big, newsworthy stuff in there that's really <laughs> interesting, and um, basically nobody is looking at them. Huh. And so I'm just drowning in data sets. There's way too much for me to handle, and so I kind of wrote this book to make more of me and to make it so that more people have the technical skills that they need to to start doing this. I specifically made it for journalists, but also for 
you know, researchers who uh, maybe work for NGOs or nonprofits or activists that uh, are, are interested in, in some topic. You hear about a data lake and you manage to download a copy, you know, you could pick up the book to figure out what what interesting stuff you can find in there. Tell me a little bit more about data leaks versus like data breaches. So we hear about data breaches all the time. I talk to my audience about the show because unfortunately they're they're very common. But a data leak and a data breach is not really quite the same thing, right? So tell us a little bit about maybe what the difference is between a data leak versus a data breach. And as an example, like what are some of the more famous or impactful data leaks, historically speaking? So th- there aren't really formal definitions of, of like what a data breach is and a data leak is, but um, a data breach, these, these happen all the time. Generally, it's when some company has a bunch of data and they get hacked or maybe they have some sort of like misconfiguration. They accidentally expose a bunch of data to the public. It's not even necessarily a hack and a bunch of data gets out there. Sometimes it's, um, you know, just a specific hacker or or hacker group or organization that gets it sometimes like in the case of of ransomware the group might actually publish the data on the internet Mm -hmm. and i feel like data breaches and data leaks kind of can merge at some points i think that the big Mm -hmm. the big leak the, the the big difference between leaks and breaches is that leaks are are what journalists focus on leaks are what get reported on and a lot of times leaks can be like like internal whistleblower uh, mm-hmm. data breaches, basically. So I feel like really any data breach could actually end up being kind of treated sure. like a leak. Um, right. But most of them aren't. Just because, you know, like cybercrime is so prevalent, most of the time it's just tons of people's data is hacked and then, you know, the, the, the data gets traded on, you know, sketchy forums online and sold and stuff like that. But sometimes, you know, there might actually be some real newsworthy revelations in there and journalists will report on, on what they find. You're right. There are no formal definitions, which is why this gets a little murky. But to, in, in my head, it seems more like, you know, the things like Edward Snowden, like even WikiLeaks, you know, that, that leaks is right in the name, right? <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> so it seems like it, it's more of a political thing, like where information, they want this information to be known, maybe to a subset of people as opposed to the general public. But it, it it's more political, maybe, or yeah, uh, absolutely. A revenge or something like that. <laughs> I think that when people are trying to make some sort of statement or, or you know, expose some sort of specific wrongdoing, that... I, I, that that's that's generally what is uh, you know most interesting to the public, most interesting to journalists and researchers, um, and yeah. And so, so some examples. One that I like to bring up, even though it's a little old, is uh, from 1971. A underground activist group that called itself the Citizens Commission to investigate the FBI broke into an FBI field uh, office and they stole a bunch of documents and then they anonymously leaked them to the media and they actually never ended up getting caught like a few years ago the remaining people who were part of that group uh wrote a book about it (laughs) but this uh leak of data is actually what ended up exposing COINTELPRO which was the secret FBI program to surveil and infiltrate and discredit left-wing political groups Hmm. and one of the reasons why I bring that up is because you know like a lot of the work that I do and a lot of what's covered in the book is it's a mix of whistleblowers and hackers. So I could talk more about this later, but basically whistleblowers are like insiders who, you know, feel like there's, they they see something terribly wrong and feel compelled to expose it. Whereas hackers are like outsiders who, who break in 
because they know that they, they believe that something's wrong. They break in, they steal the data, and then they give it to journalists. But in either case, once you have this data set, how you how you analyze it is kind of similar. So so mm. the, the, the book kind of covers both. But this is sort of like a, an analog version of the hackers. <laughs> um, but yeah, some other big data data leaks, uh, definitely the, the 2013 Edward Snowden leaks mm. um, of NSA documents. Basically in 2013... Edward Snowden, who was an NSA and CIA worker, took a massive trove of documents and handed them to journalists. And that's actually how I got started in all of this. That's how I accidentally started doing journalism. Um, (laughs) At the time, I worked for the Electronic Frontier Foundation, Mm. and I got an anonymous email that was encrypted, PGP encrypted to my key, from someone. I didn't know who they were, and they were just like, Hi, I need your help. Could you help teach some journalists how to use encryption? It'll be really helpful. And I had no idea who it was, but I just but this is actually a lot of what I was doing at EFF was kind of like teaching journalists how to use encryption, talking about HTTPS and things survival like that. Survival self-defense guide, as I recall. Yeah, surveillance I, I, I helped work on the surveillance self-defense guide. So I was like, sure. And so I uh, you know, started teaching Glenn Greenwald how to use PGP and how to use like pigeon with otr encrypted chat and stuff that was actually that was the one that stuck pgp was a bit too hard but pigeon and otr was what worked and i and i like you know laura poitras already was using um uh pgp but i helped like verify her fingerprint yeah it turned out i was talking to edward snowden and so i ended up doing kind of like journalist security for the edward snowden leak and then you know after Glenn Greenwald and Laura Poitras and Jeremy Scahill started The Intercept. Laura basically, like, I remember she was sending me these encrypted uh, jabber messages with OTR, like, convincing me to leave EFF and and join The Intercept to do security for them. And then then once I started working at The Intercept, I kind of accidentally started writing for it as well. (laughs) So so, so, so that was kind of how I got started. But yeah, like, the Edward Snowden leaks were... I feel like they were really big in, in... there were international news. They were. It was a huge deal that the NSA was pretty much spying on everything on the internet, everything that went over phones, completely. And yeah, I feel like there has been very little actual government reform. But 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 the biggest thing that I see has changed from that is um, the public awareness has mm. uh, made the technology better. Like back mm-hmm. then, I had to be just like spending like weeks trying to teach a journalist how to send an encrypted message but now we have a signal that didn't really exist like back then most of the web wasn't encrypted now https is pretty much everywhere and browsers are giving warnings if you go to a website that doesn't have https right and, and it's like i feel like that like all of these changes like just the whole internet being much more secure is probably a direct you know directly related to the snowden links and then one, one more data set, BlueLeaks, was a, was a, a big one. Um, this was in 2020, in the middle of the Black Lives Matter protests all over the, mm-hmm. um, the U.S. and around the world. Somebody hacked, or well, Anonymous is, is the, the group that took credit. Anonymous hacked hundreds of law enforcement websites and leaked about 270 gigabytes of police data to distributed denial of secrets. And... It, this data basically shows like widespread police misconduct, spying on activists. Um, most of these groups were uh, law enforcement fusion centers, which are basically collaborations between mm-hmm. uh, federal agencies like 
the FBI and ICE and uh, DHS and stuff and uh, local police. There was a lot of really interesting stuff in there. And, and one of the reasons why I bring this up is because my book focuses heavily on Blue Leaks. That's like kind of an example mm. data set. And so mm-hmm. if you read it, you download a copy of Blue Leaks, then you start analyzing it start learning how to like look through it and write code to work with it and um and think and like read the the bulk emails that the fusion centers sent out to local cops and things like that okay so what what role do data leaks play in modern journalism you know as a reporter you know it sounds like you're you're inundated with these things so how are you most likely to come across such data I, I, you know do whistleblowers reach out to you directly because you know that's the intercept we know these guys will take this stuff or do you, do you go around the dark web and say oh here's another one and dig through that or are they just released to the public and, and you go for it that way or probably some combination of those there, so there's a big combination of them and and it's also like how how newsworthy data sets get out there there's a lot of different ways so first i'd say that that data leaks are incredibly common. And in fact, that's probably, you know, one of the main ways that journalism happens these days. Like, like think of the, uh, the le- leaked uh, Supreme Court opinion mm. about Roe v. Wade, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm. I, don't, I don't know the, the inner workings of how that worked, but my guess is that was a digital file. My guess is that somebody had like a PDF, they figured out how to, you know, get it off of the Supreme Court network and then send it to a journalist. <laughs> and that's mm-hmm. an example of a data leak. That happens all the time. But yeah, like for me personally, it's a mix of, of whistleblowers uh, or other sources that, you know, uh, aren't necessarily whistleblowers, um, uh, but, but just, you know, have something interesting like contacting me directly or hackers contacting me directly. Or I also follow distributed denial of secrets really closely and look at the data sets that they publish but in terms of just how how data sets get out there, here, here's a few examples. So right after Russia invaded Ukraine in 2022, a Ukrainian security researcher who is anonymous, I don't, I don't know his name, but he's given some interviews before, have been looking into Conti, which is a Russian mm-hmm. ransomware group. Yep. And he had like kind of infiltrated them and basically leaked... a a ton of information about this ransomware group, including like their internal chats from a rocket chat server that they made and like mm-hmm. internal, like training manuals and source code and all sorts of stuff. And uh, what he had done is actually, you know, uploaded them to, I think like a, uh, some free file sharing website and then made a new Twitter account and just tweeted them and um, got a few people to notice. And then it kind of caught on and, the Conti leaks are actually uh, a little bit discussed in the book. You'll you'll get to look through some Russian ransomware chat logs. <laughs> um, <laughs> but then another one is, is Parler. So January mm-hmm. 6, mm-hmm. 2021, a lot of the Trump supporters were kind of, uh, you know, organizing that um, on Parler. <laughs> <laughs> Let's meet and commit crimes. Let's meet and commit crimes. And, and also and also like during the actual during the actual day, they were, you know, taking videos and photos. <laughs> right posting them to Parler in real time. A lot of these, um, they actually included GPS coordinates in the metadata. Sure, right. Yeah. And so so what happened is right after January 6th, AWS announced that they were going to deplatform Parler because Parler was refusing to moderate content that incited violence. And they, they, they gave them a few days. And um, a hacktivist basically noticed this and scraped all the videos from Parler. 
it was like 54 terabytes of videos. It's way, wow. way more video, way, way more disk space than is really feasible for anyone to just individually download. And what's wow. kind of funny, I think, is that they actually downloaded it. So Parler was using an AWS um, S3 bucket. They copied it from one S3 bucket and uploaded it to another S3 bucket. So while Amazon was kicking... That's just efficient. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But, but, but then they ended up uh, using a program called Exif Tool to grab the metadata from each video. And, yep. and so there's a chapter in the book of like, you download all the Parler metadata and then you figure out which ones were, which of these videos, it's like over a million videos. You write some Python that looks through these million pieces of metadata you figure out which of these videos were filmed on January 6th and how GPS coordinates in Washington, D.C. And then you can, like, actually, like, you know, convert them into a format that you could import into Google Earth to map them all. And then you could just click on videos and you could just see, wow. like, covered all over the U.S. Capitol. So, 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 and that's an example of one that was just, like, that was a data leak, but it was, like, it was a scrape. It was just kind of public. It was just out there. Anyone could have done it. Yeah, now there is... American College of Pediatricians, the uh, Southern Poverty Law Center calls it an anti-trans hate group. It's this group that like they like helped overturn Roe v. Wade and stuff. Mm -hmm. They left a yep. uh, Google Drive folder uh, just public with like 20 gigabytes of data. And so somebody found it somehow, like probably like someone had emailed a link to that included something and someone was clicking around and found it. And then they just downloaded the 20, all the whole 20 gigs. And now that's, you know, you can download a copy of it from dust secrets <laughs> um, wow. and so so there's like a lot of stuff like that that happens but there's also a lot of like hacker groups have telegram channels that where whenever they like hack something they they, they post their the sure. data sets to telegram ransomware groups tend to have like tor onion service websites mm -hmm. um so if you're like following a ransomware group and you find their onion service you can go to it and uh you know you could just download all the stuff that they've hacked that, that all the companies that refuse to pay their ransom yeah, so, there, so there's a mix. There's so much data out there. And like I was saying, like, I, I don't have time to, like, look at... I, I look at, like, a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of it. Um, and so mostly for me, I just follow what DDoS Secrets kind of curates. And then also, you know, when people reach out to me directly. Wow. Okay, all right. So you, you found a data set. You've decided this, is, this looks interesting. You've, you've, you've downloaded a copy of this data. You've got whatever claims are being made about this data by the data leaker, uh, about what that data represents. So now what? Like, and this is, I'm sure, what your whole book goes into. But in 25 <laughs> words less, no. In a short, in, in, in a much, much expurgated version, like, walk us through your process for you know, how do you validate that data? How do you understand the import of the contents? And, you know, maybe how do you uh, back up the claims that were made about that data? What you do really depends on the type of data. It, and it, 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 it's like entirely different if you have, you know, an email dump versus if you have a data, like a SQL database versus mm -hmm. if you have a collection of office documents, right? Like it really, it really just depends. So there's different ways of, of, of going about doing it. In general, it's really good if you could use OSINT, uh, like mm -hmm. open source intelligence. So basically if you can find information in the data and then find other information just like out there in the world on the internet that can can you know ver that, that matches up with what's in the data corroborate what's there exactly exactly and yeah and there's like a lot of different techniques like for emails there's email headers that you can use called uh, dkim headers that where you can actually use some cryptography to verify that this email was actually sent by this email server right and things like that so so there's so there's some ways that you could actually have some kind of cryptographic proof that this was uh, uh, real and not modified. Normally, it's not that easy, 
But I could just give you an example. So one of the pieces of journalism that I did in the last few years, that there's also, this is one of the case studies for my book, is about America's frontline doctors. This is a an anti-vax group that, mm. so, so a, a, I didn't really know anything about them actually at the time, but I got a signal message from a, a hacker who was anonymous. I had no idea who they were. And they said that they had hacked the horse paste peddlers and that they were hilariously easy to hack. And I looked into America's Frontline Doctors and basically it was this group that was selling ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine as cures Mm -hmm. for COVID. Mm -hmm. And the more I looked into them, I saw that, you know, they kind of were founded as like kind of associated with Trump's 2020 campaign, uh, election campaign to try and get get him reelected during the pandemic. And like Simone Gold, the founder, she's a January 6th insurrectionist. Um, but basically what this hacker had sent me was um, about 100 megabytes of files. And when I uncompressed them, it was bigger, but it was basically patient records. It was like hundreds of thousands of patient records from the telehealth companies that worked with America's Frontline Doctors and also uh, pharmacy prescription records. And so I needed to figure out if this was real or not and also like what was in it. But basically with this information, I actually realized that I could figure out how much money this group was taking in and how many patients they had. And also mm-hmm. other things like the patient records included birth dates. So I could figure out how old all the patients were. I could figure yeah. out like, and, and it was actually pretty, pretty terrifying. It, it was something like 72,000 people had wow. paid for these uh, telehealth consultations. Wow. They paid at least $15 million for like fake health care, but probably actually much more because I only had a, a portion of the data. I was missing a lot of the data. And, uh, you know, like the majority of them were like over 50. But basically, once I had had done a bunch of analysis of this data, I wanted to know if it was real. So I so I knew uh, I had the email addresses of all of these patients. And I was like, okay, this this is like an anti-vax kind of Trump associated group. And so I was looking at how how could I figure this out? There was this other uh, data leak called uh, from a social network, Gab, which is this Mm -hmm. other right wing social network. And this uh, Gab leak, um, someone had hacked Gab like a year or two earlier and and had posted all the information and I had a copy of it and it included 38,000 email addresses. So I was like, maybe there's maybe some of these Mm. Gab users and some of these America's Frontline Doctors patients overlap. So I basically wrote some Python that like grabs all the email addresses from the patients, grabs all the email addresses from Gab, finds some overlap. And I found a bunch of overlap. And then I just went through Gab. I looked at these people that were allegedly America's Frontline Doctors patients. And I found, um, you know, several of them, like I, like 15 or 20 that were, were together. I went through all their Gab profiles and I just read what they had been posting to Gab. And I found a handful of them posting about getting their hydroxychloroquine from America's Frontline Doctors. Mm. And so that made me really confident that this was real. Right. <laughs> right. And so that's an example of using like OSINT mixed with, you know, other data leaks to, to right. verify it. Yeah, that's a lot of things about uh, data leaks. And even when people, you know, a lot of companies claim that they're aggregating data and anonymizing data, but you start correlating that with another set of data, another set of data, you can identify people pretty quickly. Yep. So there are obvious ethical questions <laughs> with some of this stuff. In this case, we're talking about personal, you know, people's record, you know, medical records. But also when you're talking about maybe stuff from governments, then, you know, they always say we're worried about sources and methods. You know, you could expose our sources. So how do how do you handle that? You know, you could be burning, you know, burning agents in the field who 
at the low level, it could make mean them losing access to this data going forward. Uh, you know, they, they could be burned as a source or they could act. They could be arrested and killed. So, so I'm just curious as a non-journalist, are there standards and practices for these things? Do they teach us in journalism school? Is this just something you learn on the job? How do you, how do you handle the ethics of holding this data? I mean, that's, that's a really good question. Um, I never went to journalism school, <laughs> um, but also, you know, I don't think they really did teach this stuff in journalism school. Like, mm. you know, 10 years ago when I started anyway, I think that this is all, this is all kind of cutting edge stuff. I know how the intercept handles this stuff. So when we have a sensitive leak of data, the main things that we want to do is we really care about protecting our source from retaliation, from like getting fired or maybe getting arrested or maybe even getting murdered, depending on what, what yeah. the data is, right? We want to protect the privacy of, you know, unrelated people that have nothing to do with it. Like data leaks are just full of people's private information, like like this America's Frontline Doctors thing, like that we, we weren't going to publish, you know, the name of any patient or anything. Like, that's not what it's about. It's about right. this anti-vax group, you know, profiting off the pandemic, not not all of these people. And we really want to, like, expose corruption and crimes and wrongdoings. And so, you know, a, 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 about government uh, data sets that, that are, you know, secret or classified that could expose sources and methods. I mean, I think an, an important thing to consider is that as journalists... It's not really our responsibility to protect the government's secrets for them, and especially when those secrets are covering up crimes, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, I think that if if we have reason to believe that someone could be harmed by publishing something, then definitely we'll, like, put that into consideration and probably not publish it. But for the most part, you know, just because something's classified doesn't actually mean that... And just because, you know, publishing a classified document means it might expose some sources and methods doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it. So what we really do is we consult with, uh, you know, editors and lawyers, like for, for every sensitive data set to like try and talk through all these issues. And then also oftentimes outside experts that know more than we do. And then we make we make a judgment call about whether or not this is in the public interest. So like, COINTELPRO, <laughs> that's definitely in the public interest. It's not like, yes, that was all secret. It was all like, yeah, there was a lot of sources and methods when that got exposed. That got exposed like the FBI is trying to convince civil rights activists to commit suicide. Like mm -hmm. that, that's, a that's a method that got exposed. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> right. But uh, yeah, and, and the, the Snowden leak, like spying on everyone in the United States without a warrant, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> um, so... Under what circumstances do you ever reach out to government agencies or, or, or private parties, if the case may be, where you say, look, we, we've got this information. Here's a story we're going to run. Here's the kind of things we want to say. Do you give them any opportunity to say, look, you know, your journalism, we, First Amendment, yada, yada, we can't stop you from publishing this, but we really wish you wouldn't do this one thing and we can't quite tell you why. How do you, was there any of that? I mean, you see that in movies maybe, but is that, does that actually happen? I mean, yeah, so whenever we publish data that's kind of adversarial, uh, like journalism that's adversarial, that like, you know, the government's not going to like, or some company's not going to like, we always reach out to them. We explain what we have. We give them a chance to tell their story, to back it up. And also, you, you know, to give it, we give them a chance to tell them why the reasons they think we shouldn't publish it. I think that that's just kind of, that's pretty standard. It depends on the, on, you know, the organization. So, like oftentimes it's like we get everything ready and then we give them a chance like 24 hours before we publish. So we give them like a little bit of time, but not enough time to like totally preempt us. Um, mm -hmm. there's, there's actually, I don't know, there's a lot of stories of like, of like, you know, 
some organization trying, like, handing the story to a friendly journalist to publish first, or or right. other things like that, um, mm-hmm. or trying to like quickly like sue us before we can publish, or <laughs> or whatever. Mm-hmm. So we always give them a. Ch- we always like. It, it's always good to like hear everyone's side and to quote them. So so pretty much so like if we're going to publish a secret FBI document, we are definitely going to contact the FBI before we publish and say, "Hey, FBI press office." We have this document that shows, you know, that, like, the FBI has been spying on Muslims in mosques or whatever it is. We're going to publish it. Can you give us a comment? And it's their chance to try and, like, make them not look as bad, basically. And sometimes, you know, sometimes they just lie. And if they lie, then we just quote them and, and explain this is how we know that they're lying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, but 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 I think that that's pretty pretty like a pretty important ethical thing is to always give the target of your investigation a chance to defend themselves. All right, so let's let's say I am in a position to blow the whistle uh, on something my employer is doing or, or or whatever. I've got access to some privileged information that I think the public needs to know that I think might not be uh, be legally questionable for me to do so. So, but but I've decided to go through it. I've I've I've, I've done this. What? What's what is your advice if if you could generally advise people who might be in this position? What what should I do? I'm the, I'm the most whistleblower here. What should I do, and maybe more importantly, what shouldn't I do? So, I mean, it 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 does really depend on what you're risking. Like like in some like if you are, let's say that you you work in the Chinese military, and you right like, and you're right. gonna leak something that the communist party really doesn't like that's like a totally different situation than like you work for google and you're gonna like leak something about their newest product right so well, so, so if you're working for the russian government or something like that that taught me a term or one that i hadn't heard a long time called defenestration uh-huh. uh, yeah, you know where people mysteriously fall out windows exactly yeah yeah um, and, so, and so, yeah, like it, in some cases, you might be risking getting murdered and, and you might want to take much, much, much more precautions than in other cases. Uh, right now, when everything is digitized, everything is on computers, everything that you do is under surveillance, like both by your employer and then also just by other companies, by your ISP, by your, your telecom company, by the tech giants that like host your email and um, the host the search engines and everything else. And all of this data ultimately might end up being uh, available to leak investigators. So I think that something to consider is how many people have access to the data that you're leaking. So it's one thing that if like, if you work for a company that has 10,000 employees and the entire staff gets an email from HR about something and you decide to leak that email, that's like completely different than if you find a document and you are one of three people that has access to that document, right? Right. So I think that, that like that's something that you should really consider. You should also, as much as possible, don't use work devices. So don't mm-hmm. use your work computer. Don't use your work phone. Uh, mostly, like this oftentimes isn't totally possible because you like have to use your work computer in order to right. access the thing. You should be aware that like, you know, everything is logged. Like every time you load a Google Doc, there is a log in like Google, like, like I, I have access to Google admin at my job. I could log in and I can do a, you know, an audit of a specific document and see a list of everyone that's accessed that document. And so yeah. can everybody else that uses Google Docs. And the same is true with like pretty much every document management system. And so you should be aware of this. And so just be aware that like, like if you're going to leak a document, don't just keep loading it every day. <laughs> right. Right. And when you do load it, like, a good way of getting the data out is rather than trying to like save it to your computer and then like email it or upload it somewhere or copy it to a USB disk, 
take your personal phone that your employer doesn't have anything to do with and take a photo of your screen, right? Like, that's yeah. not always possible when you... Uh, oh, and, and also on your personal phone, make sure that your photos don't upload to the cloud. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like take mm-hmm. the photo directly inside the Signal app or, or whatever. It isn't possible if you're gonna if you're trying to actually get like a big data set to leak, but um, but yeah. Anyway, that those are things to consider. It's really hard because everything's under surveillance, and you just need to like think like a leak investigator. Like, once this is published, what are they gonna do? But in the end, like you should start looking for journalists that you might trust and for news orgs that you might trust uh, on your personal computer. Don't do this on on your work computer, and and, and you probably want to use Tor browser while you're doing this. And then you start looking at their tips pages. You see, you know, does this newsroom have um, a secure drop? Do they have a signal number that I can send to? Um, and things like this. Or, or does this journalist, this individual journalist that I trust they're reporting and think they would do a good job with this data, do, do they publish their signal number? And then you and then you go from there. All right. So I, I've snuck my data out in a micro SG chip in my Rubik's Cube. <laughs> I've got, and I got it home. You mentioned secure drop. I, I'm guessing that is a popular way or a uh, maybe a best practice way to try to get information to a journalist. A lot of journalists like yourself, I've noticed, have got a secure drop link on your on your webpage on the Intercept. How do I use that? What is secure drop? So secure drop is software that news organizations use to get to, to help anonymous sources communicate with them without needing to um, you know, create an email address or create a, or ha- have a phone number that they give you or whatever. So if you if you are a source, you want to send something to a news organization and they use SecureDrop. Basically, you go to their website and you find the uh, URL for their SecureDrop, which is a, a Tor Onion service. And then um, using Tor browser, you load that URL, and so you're anonymously loading it, and you make an account on SecureDrop. And then you can send messages to the news organization and you could upload documents to the news organization. And it's basically designed to be, to store as little information as possible. Like the journalists are not going to know who you are uh, if you use secure unless you tell them and everything is encrypted. And so it's a, it, it's a best practice. It's very secure. It's also very cumbersome. Like you have, like if the journalist replies to you, you have no way of knowing. You just have to like, remember to come back later, log in and reply Mm-hmm. Um, it's very cumbersome to use on the journalist side too, but it's also like very, very safe. Mm-hmm. So SecureDrop is a, uh, it, it, yeah, SecureDrop was first developed by Aaron Swartz. He called it uh, DeadDrop and, and it was taken over by Freedom of the Press Foundation and they renamed mm-hmm. it to SecureDrop and now it's it's used by major newsrooms all over. But yeah, SecureDrop is a good way of doing things. Sometimes it's, it can be uh, difficult, like if you're sending a lot of data, because you have, mm. it's a Tor Onion service. So if you're gonna yeah, if you're right. trying to send someone like ten gigabytes of data, you're gonna have to have it, it. It might just not even really be feasible. You can use Secure Drop to like reach out and start talking, and then think figure out a different way to send mm-hmm. the ten gigabytes of data. Right. But yeah, like I, I think another tool that's that's increasingly being used is Signal. And like the downside is that you have to have a phone number. You have to share your phone number. Currently, um, they're trying to currently. fix that. But yes. Yeah, 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 exactly. But Signal is actually like you generally get communication happens a lot faster on Signal, which can be really nice. What does it mean to be a quote unquote whistleblower, like from a legal standpoint? So, you know, employees... At any major corporation, almost any job today, you sign up. You're you're guaranteed to be as part of your paperwork you're signing when you on day one is a non-disclosure agreement of some variety, right? You're you're promising to keep corporate secrets, and for, you know government employees actually hold up their hands and take an oath. So, how do you determine 
when you have a legal right to break those kind of commitments and, you know, and how do you, and there's ethical considerations too, right? I mean, a lot of people will just think, you know, I gave an oath, whether I'm breaking this oath. How do you counsel people to work through that and understand, you know, from a legal standpoint, whether they can do it, for, you know, whether they're probably likely to have legal protections. And we're only talking the U.S. here because I know the, the laws are different outside the U.S., but so let's stick to the U.S. But, you know, how do I feel comfortable knowing that, yeah, this is this is what whistleblower laws were written for. I'm in the clear or or whatever. I mean, I think it's really it's really hard. Like if you're going to if you're deciding that you're going to be a whistleblower, there is always going to be risks, even if you think that you have a really good legal argument. Like a lot of NSA whistleblower, like Thomas Drake, like the pre-Snowden NSA whistleblowers, they, you know, in my opinion, were undoubtedly whistleblowers. They should have qualified for whistleblower protection. But, you know, if if the if the Justice Department and the NSA, it, it doesn't like you enough, then they're just going to not really respect that. And in the other case, it's like, so look at the Facebook whistleblower, Frances Hagan. She, mm-hmm. you know, I'm sure violated an NDA. But she um, testified in front of Congress about the stuff that she leaked, right? So it's really hard. (laughs) Nothing is is for sure. I would say consult a lawyer to get to, to like, you know, figure out if you think that there might be any sort of whistleblower protections you might qualify for. Well, that was actually my next question. Do like for do organizations like the Intercept and some of these larger journalist organizations? Do they, if the first thing I do in Secure Drop is say I think I could be a whistleblower, can I talk to a lawyer? I mean, do you, are those services or are those? You know, do you help set people up with people they might talk to to figure that out? We normally don't help set people up, but there are groups out there specifically to help whistleblowers. Like there's um the Whispers Network is one of them. Hmm. There's, uh, uh, yeah, there, there, there are legal resources out there for, for potential whistleblowers. Uh, Which we, you would provide if they reached out to. You could say, you know, we don't yeah. do this, but talk to these people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like if, if people are, are really asking legal questions and stuff, we'll, we'll just be like, well, we're not lawyers, but, you know, here's some resources maybe. But, but another thing is that, you know, it, if, if you're really potentially risking a lot to blow the whistle anonymity can be your friend like like if, if you don't get caught then you don't really need the whistleblower protections right um, that's very hard to do but yes, but, but, it, yes. but it's very hard to do yeah exactly yeah so all right your book and i haven't read it but just looking through the table of contents that i that i was able to get off your uh, the book's website you, you you talk about a lot of different computer tools uh, for analyzing data even to the point of writing code in python which is my preferred language so that's great um you've already kind of said that these things are not easy for an average non-technical person to do. So if I'm just an an intelligent person who wants to try to pick up these things and maybe play around with it, and I have the time to invest and read your book, for example, how hard would it be for me to to pick up these things and and, and use? Are these tools that you're using all publicly available tools? Are they free? How hard is it to to do what you do in this book? So I wrote the book. um, I designed it for total beginners with no experience. Um, so right. anyone that is just interested can pick it up. You just need a computer that runs Windows, Mac, or, Mac OS, or Linux, and an internet connection with the ability to download a few hundred gigabytes of data mm. and about a terabyte of disk space. And then I think most importantly is you kind of need a desire to learn because it, <laughs> yeah. it, it does get pretty technical and um, you do need to like be motivated. But if you're motivated and, and you find this stuff interesting, then then yeah, you can definitely pick it all up. And if you don't have any experience, it might be challenging, but 
it walks you through step by step. It kind of like the book holds your hand the entire way, like starting from like, here's what a terminal is. Here's how mm. you could open a terminal. And here's how you could run commands like CD and LS. And then okay. it like moves on and it's like, like, you know, it te- there's two chapters basically that teach you enough Python to get through the rest of the book. And then the rest of the book, you know, starts teaching you, okay, here's how you use Python to like analyze JSON. Here's how you use Python to analyze CSVs. Here's how you uh, use Docker to run a SQL server to import a MySQL dump and then run SQL queries. And, it, and like the entire thing is like step by step, you can follow along and it's designed for, for total newbies. Dare I hope that you've got a GitHub page where all this stuff is easily downloadable? Yes, there's a GitHub page. Every, it's github.com slash Micah F. Lee slash Hacks, Leaks, and Revelations. Excellent. And uh, also everything in the book is free and open source. Uh, so like all the technology, none of it costs money. If you have a computer, it's all open source. And, and yeah, the book kind of goes over using the terminal, Python programming, Docker, Aleph, which is this really cool tool that you can use to like index data sets and make them searchable. It teaches you how to work specifically with CSVs and other spreadsheets, with JSON, with SQL databases, with like web scraping, um, mm-hmm. and things like that. Fantastic. So <laughs> I'm already, my, my, the wheels are already turning in my head. I want to play with this myself. Uh, do I need to worry? I mean, some of these things are from Onion Sites, as you mentioned, which should be anonymous to access and slow. But do I need to, do I need to be careful if I'm doing this? Do, am I going to get on an FBI list if I start messing with some of these data leaks? sets or things like you know do you have any warnings or admonitions for people who want to dive into this to be careful of anything yeah 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 so um th- there is some some advice on like how to protect yourself from uh malware that you might find in data sets mm-hmm. so that's one thing to, to worry about but um a big thing is that in the united states it's not illegal to have hacked data sets or other leaked data sets it's, it's not illegal for any like if it's if you can find it on the inter- internet you didn't break the law when you downloaded it, you're allowed to have it. And hmm, so okay. so that's why it's not illegal for me to have a bunch of classified documents from the Snowden link. I could have them. That's perfectly legal. It's hmm. definitely illegal for Snowden to take those documents and leak them. Um, and, and it's it's the same. It's, it's, not a, it's not illegal for me to have a bunch of patient records that someone sent me over Signal. It is illegal for someone to hack into America's frontline doctors and steal them. So, to be clear, you don't have to be like a card-carrying journalist. I mean, this is anybody. This is anybody. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, 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 there's there's a handful of data sets that you download download as part of the book, but uh, you know, a big one is Blue Leaks. I don't think there's anything that's actually classified, but there's a lot of like unclassified law enforcement sensitive documents in there. But you've got a bunch of like you know FBI documents that are distributed to police and stuff like that. And yeah, it's. It, it's totally fine. You're not breaking any laws to download a copy of it. When there are, there are a few places where there's like, warning, this is going to show a URL, but don't actually load this URL because that might not, that might be crossing the line. Um, but okay. for the most part, uh, you should be completely safe and uh, it warns you at any point where you want to be. I'm curious, have corporations and governments responded to the threat of data leaks with technology of their own. You know, for example, I didn't like had spy movies. I, I, they would give slightly different data to different people in the company to see if they leak, you know, some detail that wasn't really important, but if the detail is a little different for every group of people, you tell it, you can kind of tell where that leak came from. Uh, you know, I can almost picture some sort of, you know, blockchain based chain of custody system, for example, 
are companies aware of these leaks? Are they actually taking active countermeasures to try to maybe not, it's hard to prevent the leaks necessarily. We've talked about some of that technology, but maybe to figure out who did the leak, should the data come out? And then, you know, kind of from your book, do you ever worry about, you know, by publishing your tools and techniques for what you do, do you ever worry that that gives them ideas on how to do those things to prevent the leaks or to catch leakers? So in terms of like watermarking different documents in different ways and giving them to different people, there's a lot of research actually on, on what's possible. And, and it ends up being that like, there's just so many ways that it's possible that this could happen that it's that it, there's really no way to, to fully defend against it. Like, like there's differences in kerning, like the spacing between letters mm -hmm. could mm -hmm. differentiate documents or there could be documents that are exactly the same, except one has a typo. And then one has a different typo, right? And so there's like a lot of different ways that this could happen. There's, so there's research into this, but there's actually very little evidence of, that it's actually in use in practice. Oh, really? So it's like, like, who knows? It's possible that it is. I mean, if you just imagine, you, you know, your typical work day where you're sitting there like editing documents or emailing them back and forth, imagine how much extra like work it would be to make a zillion different versions of them <laughs> you know right um but you know it definitely is possible um and there's and the book actually does go into ways the journalists can mitigate these and so hmm. the main way is don't actually publish the original document instead make a recreation of it and publish your recreation of it or like mm -hmm. re retype the document and just publish the text in it or you know if you if you want to be even safest don't even type the text in it. Just describe the information in it. And and it's a trade-off. It's like the mm. less... It, like if you publish the original raw document, that's kind of the most transparent. That gives the reader the most information. But it also is the most risky. And, you know, if you, if you just like describe some revelation that you found, that's the least transparent. But also the, the organization that's doing the leak investigation, they might not even know what document you're referencing. It makes it mm. way harder for them to catch the leaker. So um, there, there, there's that. Um, in terms of, am I worried that the book will actually make it easier for leakers to get caught? I'm not really because this book isn't actually teaching you how to leak. This is more mm -hmm. like, once you have a bunch of data, here's how you analyze it. So the leaking has already happened at that point. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Sure. So I don't know if your book goes into this because I haven't seen it yet. It hasn't been published yet. But do do you, I don't know if you cover like AI tools like ChatGPT because ChatGPT is really good at ingesting like a lot of a lot of data, like let's say a lot of documents, and and then generating summaries of that data for you, like really shockingly, creepily good summaries of, of that data. Uh, but you can also have it ingested a bunch of data, and then you can ask it questions about that data. Is this something that? that you are looking into? Is this something you've used? How might this affect your analysis of a data set? Yeah, I mean, ChatGPT can be very impressive. Um, and I actually even recently, like, like I have chat, I have the paid version of ChatGPT, so I can actually, mm -hmm. like, upload images to it and, and upload files and stuff. And I had sent it a, uh, a screenshot of, like, a Russian document, a Russian legal document, and I asked it to summarize it in English, and it totally worked well. It was great. So the biggest problem with using ChatGPT for this stuff is that means you have to share your data set with OpenAI. Right. So if you have a if you have sensitive data, it's just not an option. And also it's all it's like maybe at some point there will be tools that make it easier, but like it's not really the easiest to have it like sit there and read through a thousand documents and then tell you I don't know, like what's newsworthy in them, <laughs> you know? Um, <laughs> what I feel like ChatGPT is actually the best at, and, and and in fact, what I feel like 
You can do, if you're not super tech savvy, but you want to learn this stuff and you're not super confident that you'll be good at, you know, programming in Python or whatever, like, if you if you pair it with ChatGPT, you're not going to have a problem at all. So ChatGPT is great at writing code and, and, and helping you solve problems without having to share data with it. So you can be like, I have a data set full of, you know, CSV files and, uh, you know, here are the columns. Can you write me some Python code that loads them all and you know, summarize this stuff and then give me some code to like graph it and it'll just give you the code. And, yeah. you know, you might need to like understand it a little bit to fix the little problems or to like ask it to fix problems for you. But like, I feel like that's where, that's where it's the most helpful is it could just really, really speed everything up by helping you work with different types of data, helping you uh, write lots of code, helping you write SQL queries. Actually, you could be like, I have a SQL database. Here's the name of the table and the columns how do I learn, you know, the total amount of money that, you know, everyone in this category, blah, 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 and then it'll write a SQL query for you and you can run that. So yeah, that's where I think it's super helpful. As we wrap up here, we've talked a lot of very technical stuff and I'm going to guess that most of my audience are not going to run out and whistleblow tomorrow. You know, so what might the average non-technical listener take away from everything we've talked about today? And and maybe why might they want to be interested in reading your book? How could we apply the sort of critical thinking and maybe even some of these you know data analysis methodology to our to our everyday lives and the the, the thing that popped into my head when I was thinking about this is this 2024 is here and the election this year is going to be nuts and you know, with chat gpt and and all these other tools being used against us social media is going to be full of mis and disinformation there's some of these techniques or some of these approaches to data leaks where they might help us to sort through these things and maybe insulate ourselves against these things or maybe even protect other people from being pulled into this stuff yeah, I mean, I think that everyday non-technical listeners, I think that verifying authenticity of data sets with like OSINT, like that sort of thing, you can do that yourself to protect yourself from disinformation. If you if you see a tweet and, you know, hopefully you have have enough critical thinking to not trust anything you read, <laughs> um, mm. you, you know, like there's actually a lot of things you can do to go and, 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 and verify if this is real. Like try and find the original source Try and um, see if you can find outside information somewhere else on the internet that corroborate, corroborates it. And I also just think that just in general, understanding how real investigative journalism actually works can really help you stay skeptical when you read news articles, especially news articles from, you know, some source you 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 aren't familiar with already. There's a lot of fake news. There's a lot of disinformation. And if there's claims that are being made, uh, you know, like, like, how how do they know that? And so I think that that understanding how this stuff actually is made uh, responsibly could help you spot the the fake stuff. How do you know what news sources to trust? How do you you know? Obviously, you, you like your own organization, but but as a as a non journalist, as as a regular everyday person, how can I evaluate the sources of this data and and know which news sources and, and news organizations uh, have the more high quality backed up information? I don't know. That's <laughs> yeah, right. That's a tough one, right? <laughs> that, that's... That, 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 that's a tough one. That's a tough one. I mean, like, like in general, a lot of the big mainstream news organizations definitely have biases, but at least have journalistic standards. And so I think that like, if you're familiar with like, like I think, I think that for the most part, the Washington Post isn't going to straight out, like, lie to you or, or give you disinformation, although occasionally it might, you know? <laughs> so 
So, um, but, but then, like, I, I think that it's really hard. I think that you really just need to kind of, like, develop critical thinking skills, figure out who, w- which, you know, newsrooms and uh, individual journalists you kind of trust, and, and go from there. And, you know, you're definitely always at risk of, like, being in your own little misinformation rabbit hole and not realizing it. <laughs> um, right. But I don't really have a good answer for that one. <laughs> Well, I think multiple sources is good, too. So if you see it one place, that's one thing. If you see it multiple places, then they can corroborate each other. And kind of like peer-reviewed journalism and science, right? I mean, you should have some some of these organizations should be kind of working to back each other up or at least, you know, fact-check each other. But, yeah, it is it is it is tough. And it's it has gotten harder, uh, certainly, uh, than it has been. So, anyway, Micah, I could, we could go on for hours. Thank you so much for coming on the show. That was just a fascinating subject. And we'll definitely have to have you again some other time. Thank you so much. This has been really fun. That was a really interesting conversation. Uh, we talk a lot about data breaches, but we don't really talk about data leaks uh, from a journalistic standpoint. A lot of the data that comes up in news stories and, and these blockbuster news stories you, you see came from data leaks. Somebody, either a whistleblower or uh, maybe some corporation or even a government entity accidentally dropped some data on a, on a Amazon web service bucket somewhere and forgot to lock it up and somebody found it. There's lots of ways and apparently it's happening daily. So again, we are not lawyers. Please, if you are thinking about being a whistleblower or anything legally related to leaking sensitive data, hopefully to a qualified and responsible journalist, please do not take anything that we said today as absolute legal truth, certainly if you're outside the U.S. Uh, If you need that sort of information we talked about in the show, you can use tools like SecureDrop to start communications, very secure and hopefully anonymous communications with somebody, then if you need legal help, they may be able to point you somewhere. And and we talked about at least one option in in this podcast. Now on the day we recorded this, which I usually don't do them this close to when we release the the thing, but because the book was coming out tomorrow, Micah's book is dropping tomorrow. uh, We wanted to kind of get this out right beforehand. So I actually just interviewed Micah last Thursday. And the day we were doing the interview, Elon Musk apparently suspended Micah's Twitter account. Now I can still see it. I think what what happened is you suspended from posting and I've read that maybe that's only going to last seven days. So it may not be permanent, but nevertheless, because Micah has reported and tweeted about Elon Musk, Elon Musk apparently didn't like that. Uh, and so he shut down some pretty prominent journalist accounts, including Micah's uh, last Thursday. I, I need to get an update on that and see what happened, but hopefully it's not permanent. Now, as we were doing this interview, I actually kind of got excited. Like the wheels in my head were starting to turn. I've actually written a lot of tools in the past that parse through a lot of text data. Uh, As a software engineer, because I wanted tools that would help me take all of our log files and configuration files and all this information we were getting from the field about devices, I wanted to be able to quickly sort through that. And so I actually have written several log parsing tools that do the kind of things that, that I think Mike has been doing. I'll find out when I read his book, but I can actually see myself doing some of this stuff myself. So I'm very interested in reading the book. Mike had talked about co Intel pro uh, and mentioned a movie. I I tried to look it up. I think the movie is just called 1971, the documentary uh, and the book about that. The only one I could find was one called the burglary or the discovery of J Edgar Hoover's secret FBI by Betty Medsger, M E D S G E R. Uh, There are links to that in the show notes if you are interested. Now, now speaking of Micah being potentially 
uh, blocked on Twitter. Uh, for the bonus content for the patrons, uh, which you guys will get on Thursday, uh, I had to ask him about the Twitter files. And journalistically speaking, like I didn't want to get into the the political parts because that's kind of off the rails. But I did, you know, from a journalistic standpoint, I wanted to ask him about the Twitter files because I know he's reported a lot on Twitter on Elon Musk. Again, as we, as we as we now know, Elon wasn't too happy about that, and also because Micah actually has seen Edward Snowden's documents. He was at the Intercept, and and he was one of the very few people on this planet who were able to analyze all the documents. I had to ask him a little bit more about that too. So, for my patrons, you will be getting that bonus interview stuff on Thursday. So annual listener survey. Uh, I do these every January now at this point. Uh, It's very easy to find. You just go to fdsd.me slash survey 2024, all lowercase. That will take you right to the Google form. And yes, I know it's a Google form. I, I apologize. I have tried very hard to find something that is, you know, as feature rich and affordable for doing surveys. And I just, I can't find anything better at this point. If you know something better, let me know. But I mean, I, I've tried JotForm. It's very limiting in the free version. And I've tried a few others. They, they just don't come anywhere close to what I can do with the Google form. So anyway, this survey, uh, it asked a lot of questions. Uh, only a few of them were actually mandatory, but I would very much appreciate it if you would fill out as many as you can. It is anonymous. You can leave an email and I'll come back to in a minute why you might want to do that. Otherwise, it's completely anonymous. There's a little bit of demographic information in there, but mostly what I'm asking about is the format of the show, what you like about the show, maybe what you'd like me to change about the show. Uh, I do ask some questions about social media. I really would like to simplify my social media footprint this year if possible. So I really want to know which of my social media outlets are most important to my listeners. And I also solicit various types of feedback. And there's, there's at least one place in there where you can give me any feedback you would like. And I would very much like to get your input on what you would like to see me do with the show you know, guests that you'd like me to interview, topics you'd like me to cover, that sort of thing. So this is your chance, your annual chance to do that. I absolutely read every single one of these things. So I would very much appreciate you doing it. And to that end, I would like to incentivize you to do that by giving away 10 free copies, like paperback copies of my book to 10 random respondents. Now, thanks to my publisher, who has been extremely supportive and understanding, we will be able to ship these just about anywhere, including internationally. So uh, I really encourage everybody to respond. We're going to do this for at least three weeks, maybe four. So I'm kind of targeting probably the first show in February to announce the winners. And the only real requirement to win is that you do your best to fill out everything. Like you can't just go and put blah, 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 you know, or leave everything blank and hope to win. I, if you're going to, if you're going to win, I'm not going to look at all of them this way, but for the one, for the 10 that I pick, I'm going to pick 10 that actually gave me the real effort of trying to give me some feedback. And I may even come up with like a a special top three winners that might get more books or maybe even a signed copy of my book. I'm, I'm still thinking about that. But at the bare minimum, I'm going to be giving away 10 hard copies of my book to 10 random respondents. So you have a few weeks to do that. Again, the link to remember is fdsd.me that's as in firewalls don't stop dragons fdsd fdsd.me slash survey 2024 and of course there is a link to that in the show notes reminder the best privacy podcast poll uh, by jeff jockish if you want to reply to that to vote for me or somebody else you must do so by wednesday january 10th 
So just looking ahead real quick, next week I'm going to be doing my annual New Year's resolution show, and I'm going to kind of tell you what my goals for me, for for the podcast and for the blog and the, the book and all those sorts of things are. I'm going to tell you what my goals are for myself for 2024 and how you can help me with those, as I will try to help you with the, with the New Year's resolutions that I'm going to be recommending that you try to take care of in the next year. And then we're finally going to have our interview with Nick Weaver, where we'll talk about killer drones, AI drones. And I've got several other interviews either already recorded or, or in the pipeline. I'm actually, at this point, almost booked out into April. So lots of great content coming your way. If you have not already, now would be a wonderful time to subscribe before you forget. And that way you'll get all of that goodness right when it happens. So that's it for this week. Take care, everybody. Stay safe out there. And until next time, don't get caught with your drawbridge down. <laughs>